0: You do get a sense of of something that's been completely burned to the ground, but you don't get a sense that this is the end of something that was so terrible. The underlying issues have not been resolved. It's not the end of anything for these people. In fact, most people said to us that they feel like they're starting over. They feel like they've just arrived again.
1: When the Greek refugee camp of Moria burned down, it was not a place that many people were sad to see go. Nearly 13,000 people who sought refuge on the island of Lesbos had been stuck in Moria's awful conditions for months or years. And for most Greeks on Lesbos, their hospitality had long been exhausted. On and off the island, Moria had become a symbol of the migration crisis, the migration problem, the migration question. But no matter what we call it, or how far it fell from the headlines, Moria wouldn't go away. Until it did.
2: Thousands of refugees are homeless in Greece after fires destroyed the biggest camp in Europe.
1: Greece
0: claims the fire was started by a small group of asylum seekers in protest over conditions at the camp, which had been locked down due to the coronavirus pandemic.
2: Moria Camp behind me, which has stood here for the past eight years, is gone.
1: I'm Malika Bilal and this is The Take.
0: The coronavirus certainly, I think, is the trigger for us now talking about this issue again, for the international limelight to be back on the refugee issue, on the migration
1: crisis. Correspondent Stephanie Decker arrived in Lesbos to report on the aftermath of the fires at Moria. But a week before the fires, a nightmare scenario had come to pass. Moria had confirmed its first case of COVID 19 and the camp was on lockdown.
0: The official narration is, and there's many different conspiracy theories, but we're going to stick to that one, is that the fire was then started by those surrounding or involved in the quarantine because they were so frustrated.
1: Six people are now facing prosecution for arson. But the conditions in the camp had made many people angry. There was almost no way to practice health measures inside Moria, and Stuff said many people she met or sceptical of the crisis.
0: We met people saying to us, we don't believe in corona, they're just using it to lock us up. And I had to say, listen, no, I'm telling you, I'm not a politician, I'm a journalist, corona exists and it does exist on the island and it's not an excuse for them to lock you up. But these people are so traumatised that when you're put in a tiny port cabin together with your whole family or other people in appalling conditions, under quarantine, under what is already a living hell, let's say. They couldn't deal with it anymore.
1: That living hell that Steph described had been making headlines for years. I mentioned earlier that Moria was home to 13,000 people. Earlier this year, that number reached as high as 20,000. When it was built, it was meant for just 3,000. Moria
0: Camp was described by so many as impossible to understand how people could live there, as an overcrowded ghetto with hardly any facilities. You had women scared of leaving their tents at night. They wouldn't leave their tents at night, so you know they'd sleep in nappies, so they didn't have to use the bathroom alone. It was so overcrowded. Remember, it's probably about three to four times capacity that it was built for it had expanded into an olive grove, which was called officially almost the jungle. And people were just living there, sort of, you know, surviving as they could. There was a lack of facilities, sanitary facilities, water, electricity. It wasn't coping. Many people have told me different voices that, you know, their surprises didn't burn down before. A Greek fisherman said, "You know what? If you'd put a hundred of us villagers in that in those conditions, it would have burnt down years ago.
1: When Steph arrived at the site of Moria, the marks of the inverno were still visible,
0: so the camp has been completely burnt. so the land is scorched. there There were olive trees, they've been scorched. You can see the structures, some of the sort of porter cabin structures that there were for the refugees and migrants." They've been burnt down, or you see them half melted. And in the beginning, you would see a lot of personal belongings still around mattresses, clothes, shoes, you know, toys, cooking facilities that people had, you know they'd made do with what they had to make their life as, You know, bearable, let's say. I think comfortable is a word we're not going to use to describe Moria at all, but bearable as possible. So many people will tell you that they weren't sad to see it burned down, but nothing has been solved, right? These people then slept for 10 days on the streets and in olive groves after the camp burned down, pretty
1: much with no help. Steph has seen displacement around the world, but the conditions after Moria burned down still surprised her.
0: I mean, I was pretty
1: shocked that there wasn't a real coordinated aid effort
0: to help these people who were sleeping on the streets. So they had put up their own makeshift shelter. Yes, there were food handouts. Uh, Once a day, the army provided food at later stages. It was distributed by an NGO. There were smaller NGOs that were sort of helping, but nothing in the sense of a, a coordinated structured aid system that would have helped these people in that period.
1: This is from a Doctors Without Borders coordinator on Lesbos a few days after the fires. A complete
2: chaotic situation. It's impossible to understand where this situation would lead. And keeping these thousands of people in the street, all around uh, Moria, all around our clinic, uh, they're sleeping uh, under the sun with total lack of basic needs. No blankets, no sleeping bag, no food, no water.
1: Staff visited the areas where people had been stranded. There were people sleeping outside locked grocery stores, or in olive groves, or on the road itself.
0: We met some amazing people. And uh, one we met an 11-year-old boy, Amur Hadi, from uh, Afghanistan, who taught himself English just from the internet. And he was very mature.
1: As Steph interviewed Amur Hadi on air, you see him sitting on the ground under a tree, with his arms around his knees. Behind him is a group of people drinking tea. There are no masks, except for staffs.
0: You know, you're 11. Mm-hmm. You're so mature. We were talking mm-hmm. earlier. Tell me about what's it like, what's um, it been like for so you? You know, it's too bad. Talking. It's too, This situation is too hard, you know? When I sleep at night, i afraid that it, they will attack on us and, and they will burn down everything that we had. It's too hard, you know? I... Uh, they are thinking that we are animal, but we are not. I mean, the racist people. I, you know, I don't want to stay here anymore with my family. I want to go to another country. I want to have a normal life. I want to go to school. They, can you believe that I have never been to school? But your English, how did you learn English? Your I, English is incredible. In my, I learned English from Internet, just by phone, on the phone. And he just broke our hearts because he was like this little mature man and he was only 11 years old. It's just these people are so traumatized uh, and they're so aware that they're not wanted, particularly when you're listening to a young child tell you
1: this. With the problems people experienced in Moria, it wasn't surprising that many of them were reluctant to go to the new camp that authorities had set up. It was on the site of a former shooting range, right on the ocean, and people were soon picking up leftover bullet casings they found on site. But as Steph saw there wasn't much choice but for people to go.
0: So after a while, the Greek authorities launched an operation with riot police. I described it as sort of peaceful force, basically just closing the road that uh, the refugees and migrants were sleeping on. So that was blocked. So obviously the locals were getting upset. There's businesses on that road. They were closed for 10 days. So obviously the Greek authorities had made it very clear that it was time to move to the new camp. Now the new camp is right on the water very much open to the elements. There is very little shade from the people we speak to inside the camp. The facilities are not great. I mean, yes, everyone says you know you need to give time in fairness for things to get up and running. But certainly, for example, the tents, the ground, it was just gravel, uh, pebbles. People get a very thin blanket. So no mattresses, it's getting cold. One food handout a day, the fact that they didn't get enough drinking water, the fact that there were no showering facilities, The toilets were overflowing. I mean, the whole thing does not at the moment look like it is a great place to be. Let's say any refugee camp isn't. But certainly after what they had experienced at Moria, this is why people were so reluctant to move into the new camp.
1: People also went to the new camp because of the threat of losing their chance at asylum. Authorities had said only people in the camp would have their cases processed. Steph said she thought the reluctance wasn't just about the lack of facilities. It was related to the lockdown they'd experienced before the fires.
0: A lot of people were concerned that they would be locked inside. Now, this isn't the case. People are allowed to come and go between the hours of 8 o'clock in the morning and 8 p.m. But everyone we've spoken to has described it. The conditions is very tough. And I think, interestingly, we were talking to the head of uh, MSF here, Doctors Without Borders, and he was telling us, you know, if this was a temporary camp, and this is what it's officially called. You know, a a transit point, let's say if people stay here for a week or so and move on, then, you know, it could be sort of deemed as uh, acceptable. But, you know, people are staying, as we know, as they did in Moria, for months on end, if not years on end.
1: The Doctors Without Borders official Steph spoke to said they're concerned that the policies that led to problems in Moria will just continue in the new camp.
2: What is it for? Are we talking about second Moria, with uh, people piling up in terrible conditions, or are we talking about a reception camp for transit of the population on their way to other places? But we're extremely worried that in fact it's just a containment policy that's going to be maintained, that is just going to keep people there for months on end, or even years, and in conditions that are going to be practically worse than in Moria.
0: So it's very difficult for these people, and, and nothing, nothing is clear for them. Nothing is explained to them in the sense of even the asylum process. So many people don't know what legal appeals are available to them. So I think we're going to have to wait and see whether this is a temporary camp. But yes, the majority are now in this new camp, and certainly at the moment, all the indications we have from the people we speak to inside is that they're not happy with the conditions at all. Steph
1: mentioned pushback from the Greeks living on Lesbos. It's pushback that's really been growing for a long time, but especially this year.
0: We've been trying to focus on getting the story of the islanders, right? Because many times their voice has been forgotten. And this is what a lot of them have told us in terms of their frustrations.
1: Steph talked to people who said there are two tragedies on this island, but the Greeks is overlooked.
2: My life has changed completely. We cannot work. Look here. Soon we should start harvesting the olives. How can you harvest here? It is not possible. Them and us. We understand them, but they should also understand us. Something that sadly isn't happening.
0: One young man said, we've been hosting these people for years and yet, you know, our grievances or our concerns are never addressed. It's the island of refugees. In fact, a couple of different people quoted the same headline of a very well-known newspaper that had called Les Vos the Island of Despair. And they were like, what Island of Despair? It's the third biggest island in Greece. If you move away from the area where the asylum seekers are, you wouldn't even know that this existed. But yet, this is how we've been portrayed. It's affected our businesses. It's affected tourism. Coronavirus hasn't helped, of course. I mean, yes, people have also made money of this situation, right? NGOs, renting rooms, car rentals, restaurants, all this kind of stuff. But they're, they're tired.
1: Steph says many of the islanders she spoke to were fed up with not being listened to. But some people were also reluctant to say that to the media.
0: It's been very difficult to get people to be honest on camera. They will tell us off camera that they're fed up. One lady saying, you know, I go to the beach and I'm stared at by a young man from, you know, she was citing uh, Morocco and Afghanistan. I don't feel comfortable on the beach. They're sitting very close to me. They're staring at me. I don't want my daughters to go. And she got angry and she said, you know, this situation, I would almost say, yes, probably has made me a racist. She said, but we've been left alone by the European Union, even by our government to deal with the situation. It's a very delicate narrative, let's say, to then ask them to say it on camera. And then she refused to speak on camera because she she was afraid of any repercussions. Because, you know, whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, it's such a small community, particularly around, you know, the the, the asylum seeker area, the camps, etc. that people just don't want to talk. So it is something that burdens, let's say, the islanders. Some of them are still 100% supportive. Uh, A lot of them, I would say, are fed up and want these people off the island. And they even blame Athens, they even blame the central government for keeping them here. So it's a very... uh, there's two stories here. And yes, they seem to be incredibly fed up with the situation, because what they say is the moment that these people arrived here and they helped them get to shore, that Europe put up its walls. And they're paying the
1: price. Now, all of this is said to have started because of a coronavirus lockdown inside Moria. But immediately after the fires broke out, authorities lost track of the 35 or so people who tested positive, though they did find some of them later. When Steph was on the island, the number of positive cases had jumped to over 200, and it's been increasing since then. Steph said the conditions are a big part of the problem people do wear masks. But I think, let's face it, the people who
0: live in the camp who are forced to live under those conditions do not have the luxury of social distancing. They do not have the luxury of being able to wash your hands. They do not have the luxury of masks or hand sanitizer. So uh, it's a very difficult situation. And certainly when you're already feeling locked up and you're then extra locked up, it becomes a very, very tricky situation mentally for them to compute.
1: In the aftermath of the fires, At the end of September, the EU released a long awaited plan meant to break the deadlock on refugees. The bloc outlined a more than 500 page plan to get all 27 EU states to take in refugees, or to take responsibility for sending people back to their home countries if asylum is denied. The new system is also meant to be faster, which means people in places like Lesbos wouldn't be stuck waiting for so long. But, Steph said that plan was mostly met with skepticism.
0: So we were talking to people trying to understand what exactly this means. I mean, we can tell you that a lot of the refugees and migrants don't understand exactly what the the details are, etc. And obviously now everything is on hold due to corona, due to the campfire, Moria Camp burning down. And it seems it basically is not about helping these people Ease the process of moving forward. What people have been telling us that this policy is about safeguarding Europe's borders, um, getting people back to their countries of origin who've had their asylum rejected, because there are many people here, for example, who've had their asylum claims rejected and that are still here. So certainly the process is complicated; it's a mess, and it hasn't clarified how these things are going to be implemented. And I think you know, as as we've been saying, clearly it's not going to help the people who are certainly here at the moment get off the island any faster.
1: What happens to the new camp on Lesbos still isn't clear. The Greek government has repeatedly said it will be temporary. But the camp's rental contract reportedly lasts through 2025. Meanwhile, the documents that many of these people need for asylum were lost in the fires, which will delay their cases even longer. What was clear to staff on Lesbos was that the islanders and the people in the camps were actually not in opposition. They were united in their main desire to close the camps and get everyone away from Lesbos.
0: We spoke to 28-year-old Afghan young man, spoke perfect English.
2: Even now, I can't believe that this is my situation. It's about more than one year's that I'm here.
0: We interviewed him live on air and he was saying, you know, everyone always talks about, oh, the refugees, they're lacking food and water and medical aid. He says, you know, I'm not worried about my stomach. He says, I'm worried about my mind.
2: They are thinking that, oh my God, they are hungry. They are, they doesn't have any water. So please, you tell me, what's about our emotional? What's about our brain?
0: He says this 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 limbo, these months, these years of not knowing, of not doing anything. He says, that, you know, I'm afraid what impact that's going to have on my mind and my mental health. It's already had an impact. He says, I don't think I'm ever going to be the same person again, even if I get somewhere.
2: I don't, I don't believe that uh, when I go another countries, even on, in my country, I can be that before persons, a live person.
0: And people are aware that they're not wanted. Even Mehdi said to us, he said, you know...
2: I want to say this, that uh, I know that the Greek governments and the Greece peoples are tired about refugees. But they are uh, right, yes. We are in their countries, but we don't have any way.
0: I know they're tired, and he says, you're right, I understand you. He says, but we don't have a way. We don't have a way. Just give us an answer, yes or no, um, in terms of their asylum process, right? Get them off the island, move them back. But this limbo, I think, is what people are finding so incredibly unbearable.
1: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke, with Oni Wohacha, Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, Negin Oliay, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Rodan is the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the social media producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Bushier is the head of audio. Special thanks to Steph Decker. We'll be back.